0: Hi there this is watching and you are now listening to the i choose the ladder podcast a podcast for black women on the corporate climb this episode is brought to you by the climb career summit the climb is an intimate full day deep dive career summit unlike anything you've ever experienced you will learn directly from black women senior executives who have successfully climbed the corporate ladder The Climb is a one-day immersive experience designed with Black millennial, delineal, and Generation X professional women in mind. So if you are looking to share your experiences, quantify your professional impact, and elevate your career, then register for The Climb Summit today. You can learn more by going to theclimbsummit.com, and I hope to see you on Saturday, September 26th at the Virtual Career Summit. In this episode, you meet Minyan Moore. Minyan is a principal at Dewey Square Group and is considered one of the nation's top strategic thinkers with extensive experience in political and corporate affairs, as well as public policy. She leads DSG's state and local affairs and multicultural strategic practices with clients ranging from the Fortune 100 to startup nonprofits seeking counsel for developing strategies that address emerging consumer markets and achieve public policy goals. She specializes in building coalitions and brand awareness strategies for corporations while at the same time effectively addressing their state and local policy issues under president bill clinton's administration mignon served as assistant to the president and director of white house political affairs in this capacity she served as the principal political advisor to the president vice president first lady and senior white house staff with primary responsibilities for planning outreach and directing the political activities of the white house she also developed and coordinated legislative strategy administration policy, and communications planning with senior White House staff. As CEO of the Democratic National Committee, Mignon was responsible for day-to-day operations and oversight of the Democratic Party. Mignon is a native of Chicago, Illinois, and currently resides in Washington, DC. She attended the University of Illinois at Chicago and graduated from the Boston University Digital Filmmaking Program. A noted speaker and filmmaker, Mignon has continued to serve as a guest lecturer and has lectured at Yale University and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. As you will hear in this interview, Mignon has a breadth of experiences, a breadth of of knowledge that she so generously shares with us. I was blown away by how much she's accomplished in the perspective that she has. And so, as always, grab your I choose a ladder notebook, your favorite pen, and get ready to get this work. Mignon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know I have been stalking you since NBA All-Star Weekend. Um, <laughs> and then I was watching TV and I saw you on know, the Boss documentary. And it seems like everywhere um, I look, you are contributing to, being, to Black excellence. So thank you. Thank you for being here.
1: Sure. I am delighted to be with you. You're the boss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so my, very first, my first question is, um, thinking back to the beginning of your career, right? how did you end up in corporate? Like, did you have parents who, um, in, like, who encouraged you to pursue a more corporate career? Like, how did you think about starting your career in corporate?
1: well that's that's interesting because I took a little a couple of zigzags. My father actually was um he worked at the post office he was a postal inspector. My mother was an accountant, and you know it was uh, you know both of these are like you know solid middle class jobs, you know I guess if that's what you want to call them. but my first actual first job was really at the post office, and that was during a time when you know kids that were in college or kids that were out of school they could actually look to go to the post office and you know it was like throwing mail and you know i delivered mail (laughs) but it was a it was a postal job and it was my father got my uncle worked there so you know i'm just glad i didn't that was not the end of the job but that was my very first job and then when i left there i ended up working for a company called charles a Stevens. it was a clothing store and I ran credit reports for them. So that's when I got my real first taste of um, you know, corporate America. But I was always in, you know, I was still in college. So I was kind of working my way through college and, and working.
0: Mm. And in thinking back to your first like, post-college job, um, mm-hmm. was that environment very diverse? How did, you, uh, how did you make that transition from working and going to school to like mentally jumping to like I'm working full-time now that I'm a whole adult.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, my first real, real corporate job where I was expected to, you know, show up in a suit, if you will, show up in a suit and be somebody was at Encyclopedia Britannica on Michigan Avenue, where it has literally been torn down now. And I think it's been built all up. It was right across the street from the Sun Times building. And so um, I was in the advertising department. I was the only African-American. But I had this wonderful boss. His name was Mr. Landau. And for some reason, he took an interest in me and he started showing me the ropes. And I eventually ended up being an assistant manager in the department, mm-hmm. in the advertising department. And so that was my real first experience with corporate America. And it wasn't diverse at all then.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so you, you're literally the only one.
0: So now that you have some distance from that first job, right? You just said for some reason, he took an interest in me. Looking back in hindsight, what do you think it was about you that made him feel like key
1: would invest in you in your career? Well, I was always eager to learn, you know, I never had um, nine to five in my head. I certainly didn't understand balance. Mm-hmm. And while that was not a job that, you know, you had to work like excessively or really late hours, but if we had big, if we had big advertising projects we had to work on, I was always the first to volunteer to stay. And I just put in the extra time and the extra work. And sometimes I would come in on Saturdays. And so it just became something that I loved. And I I love, you know, the work.
0: And as someone now who, you know, you are intentional about mentorship, um, how has mentorship for you shaped your career, like a career trajectory? And how have you found those mentors as you've grown um, in leadership within your career?
1: You know, I've I've been very fortunate because as I've I've been very fortunate because one, I didn't stay in corporate America. I kind of zigzagged out of corporate America. I became more of what they term now an activist. And so I went to work for the Rainbow Coalition. But what interestingly enough, what that taught me in doing that was I was able to bring corporate skills to a nonprofit organization. And in turn, what they gave me was the values to serve my community. And so along the way, I've been able to combine both of those, a love of community and a love for helping people as well as working in corporate America. And. Mm-hmm. I got some great mentors when I started working in the nonprofit arena. You know, Reverend Willie T. Barrow, Coretta Scott King, Maya Angelou. I was fortunate to have these women as my actual access mentors. Dr. Betty Shabazz pick up the phone and ask them questions. And they didn't necessarily work in corporate America, but they knew what it was like for women to work in positions that were non-traditional, especially Reverend Barrow. Because she had worked a lot in her career to break down the doors and open these doors up, so that women could have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And then she'd be like Shirley Chisholm, "If you don't have a seat, bring you a folding chair." And so I learned (laughs) to bring the folding chair. (laughs)
0: Um, And as someone who um, you're very busy, um, we'll go over you know some of the things that you've done career-wise. You you helped entrepreneurs. You had your own career. If someone wanted you as a mentor, what kinds of things do you look for in someone that you would spend the time or invest the time in mentoring?
1: You know, I think mentor, being a mentor is kind of oversold. I think building relationships is what what our young women are looking to do or should be looking to do, because it's one thing to say you want me to mentor you. And sometimes I give as much out of the mentoring as you give, you know, because it's, it's like a give and take, you know, you all are in a, you know, many of the women who are listening are are coming through a path that I didn't have to take. And then obviously I've come through some things and so you don't have to do the you don't have to repeat. So you you're really looking to build relationships. And I'm very, very open to that because I just firmly believe to whom much is given, much is required. Mm-hmm. I have so many young mentees in this in the political field, in the business field. I try to make myself available to them because Truly all you want is advice. You're not looking to just, you know, some of them will dominate your life if you let them, but that's okay. Because you know what? You can't fight them if they have access to you, you know, and they want to talk to you, then don't get mad when you see them doing the wrong thing. So for me, it's just like, it's like a part of my life. It's really, really who I am. I can't say it's strong enough i have young black women and brown women and white women calling me all the time and i try to stop and take the time because so many people invested in me and i just feel like i won't if there's nothing else i can do with my life i can give to them the way it was poured into me i didn't just get here by myself Mm. i had so many people pour into me i didn't come out of politics i didn't come out of business but those women who did they stopped and gave me a chance and they talked to me. So why shouldn't I do the same? Mm.
0: And trust me, we we definitely appreciate it. Because I think women like you make it easier for the next generation to, to plan, right? To think through uh, even some of the challenges may be different. Being a Black woman mm-hmm. in predominantly non-Black spaces has some of the same challenges year over year. So having women who can help you um, figure that out is is priceless, I think. Um, but so you had the most fascinating career of anybody I've interviewed on this podcast. So you talk about Randall, how did you end up at the White House, Lord Jesus? Like not this current White House. She worked in the White House back, uh, yeah. back in the day, but how did you make that transition from doing nonprofit work to then into like full-on government politics?
1: Well, I actually, when I went to uh, the Rainbow Coalition, it was actually Operation PUSH at the time. Reverend Jackson was running for president, and he ran in 1988. And I served as his deputy field director. Now, how I got that job, I have no idea. I mean, it wasn't like it was in my background. But you know, we always prided ourselves in having a rich message and a poor campaign. So you got to do almost anything. And you learn. I mean, when you don't get put in a box, That is almost the best job you want to have, is to never get put in a box because you get to kind of color outside the lines. And that's Mm -hmm. what I was able to do, color outside the lines. So I eventually, when I moved to Washington, I eventually went and worked for uh, the Democratic National Committee, and I served as their political director. And then one fateful day, I got a call from uh, the chief of staff saying, hey, listen, everybody thinks you'll be great over here at the White House. We'd love for you to come. And my answer, quite frankly, and audience, I tell you, I caution you do not take this advice, but I must tell you the truth. (laughs) I said, no, I do not want to come. Why? And so he says, well, why not? I said, well, you know, I love the DNC. I'm having a great time. I'm learning so much. And I'm like saying to myself, this is the stupidest girl I have ever heard in my life. I'm talking to myself as I'm saying, you're turning down the White House for the DNC, but that's okay, I did. So he called back again. And I said, listen, Erskine, I, you know, let me think about it. You know, I think I want to come, but I'm not really sure. But let me think about it. Well, the third call I got, and this is the sequence, was from the vice president of the United States. And so by that time, I was like, Oh, sir, this is so great that you call me. I'm so happy to hear from you. And okay, let me think about it. So by this time, yeah, I never get hey, away. As vice president of the country, you would
0: think about it.
1: Yes, I did. And let me tell you, that's why I proceeded this call with don't ever take this advice because I will get to the end of the story. I feel it's very important for your readers and listeners to hear it because I knew what was happening to me and I didn't, I've only come to admit it like years later, I came to admit what was happening. So then Erskine called back. So then I made up the excuse I didn't want to take a salary cut. And, you know, if you're African-American, your first time making money, think you're making money and you're taking care of your family. Most of us do. And, you know, and not even taking care of your family as much as you're just doing a lot of different things. I just bought a home Mm -hmm. and I'm like saying, hmm, now do I really want to because he said you'd have to take a pay cut. So, my retort was, Well, why do I have to take a pay cut? I didn't ask to come here. You guys are asking me to come there. So, I'm like, Okay. to the is... White House? Huh? To the White was... House? Yeah, I told the chief of staff, I'm like, But I didn't ask to come. You all, you know, but see, that was the boldness of coming from the outside and having been, you know, girded up and you know you are somebodyism. i was like i was taking it to the last degree but here's the moral t- to the story i went to the white house i got past all of my foolishness but it was fear mm. it was nothing but fear because i did not think i was good enough mm. and i used every excuse in the book from you know i don't want to take a pay cut don't knowing that there is not many people in this world that get the chance to work at a White House. It's very few of us. And I had the audacity to say, oh, I'll think about it. But when I came to my senses, I realized that it was simply fear. And out what, of that-
0: What were you afraid of? What was the biggest
1: fear? You know, you know it's the White House and you got you know, your white counterparts and they, you know, many of them had already been there because it was two years in. So many of them had already been there and you're like, okay, what do I know about working at a white house? Cause you know, it's like this big edifice and it's, you know, it's like this spooky thing. And I'm saying to myself, come on, you can, you can do this. You can do this. And Jesus, here's what I have to tell you. Don't ever make yourself feel like you're not good enough because nine times out of 10, it is floating in your head. And when you get to these places and then you sit and look around and you start listening to some of these people talk and you're like, what the heck did you fear? And from that point on, I have never, ever doubted myself. I'm not arrogant. I'm not, you know, I'm a very humble person in many regards. And I think it was a lot of humility, too, that just told me, you you cool where you are. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, the one thing we must. Con, and this for any woman, we must continue to say to ourselves, mm-hmm. I am okay. I am enough. I am better than many people. Mm-hmm. And don't ever play yourself down. That's why I always work very hard. Because when you work hard, play by the rules, then you should never doubt yourself. But I did, but I learned from it.
0: And then from the White House, you went on to Dewey Square, correct?
1: No, actually, I went back to the DNC to serve, frankly, as the number two, the CEO. Oh,
0: wow.
1: Uh, one, of, mm-hmm, one of my dear friends was ran for office. He was governor of uh, Virginia, Terry McCullough. And he asked me if I would come back and help him transition in. So I went back to serve as the CEO. And I did that for a year. And I always say a year and six days. I promised him I would give him a year. So I gave them a year and six days. <laughs> and then that's when I went to uh, Dewey Square after that. And I've been, and they waited for me.
0: Hmm.
1: And I've been there ever since. So
0: for people who don't know what Dewey Square is, like how would you sum it up? Because you've been there um, for a long, like almost 20 years you've been at Dewey Square. Yeah, and so people don't stay jobs.
1: Most people stay at jobs two years now. <laughs> and you're out.
0: Two, two and out. out.
1: Yep, I have been there for almost 20 years. I know 18 at least. Um, It is a public relations firm. I'd like to say that we can be innovative, but most of the time we are working with corporate America on some crisis, but we also get to help them build unique and wonderful partnerships with, you know, community-based organizations. We do great comms work for them. And so it's traditional public affairs. We are definitely good crisis managers. Many of us come out of public policy or politics. So we bring that to bear for our clients and they find it useful because we th- we think in non traditional ways. Mm-hmm. But it's a great firm and great people. And I think at, you know, at a certain age you also look for that camaraderie ship and people that you can trust mm-hmm. and people that you want to get up and go to work for. And mm-hmm. so with
0: so you're like Olivia oh, Pope, y'all.
1: This is the real life Olivia Pope, But no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, frankly we we're probably a little bit different, but <laughs> I see some similarities <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so for uh, like you just mentioned typically now with like my generation younger, we don't stay um at companies that long right what mm-hmm. have you how have you kept learning and kept your job interesting to keep you in the like you're partner now right so you're at the top mm-hmm. of, you're at the top of the company mm-hmm. so unless you're going to like run the whole thing or you know like you predict that you're at the height, the height of it. So how do you mm-hmm. how do you keep yourself engaged? How do you not uh, get bored or feel like you're stuck in some
1: place? Mm-hmm. Well, the good news is because I have, you know, paid my dues, but there's always more dues to pay. I get to do things that are non-traditional. And we also encourage our employees to do things that they are passionate about because you can come to work every day. So we've we we, we are, we've coined this phrase, I have an advocation and a vocation. Mm-hmm. And so my advocation is politics and helping and mentoring. My vocation is Dewey Square, and that's where I spend most of my time. And I also find that the reason why it was easy to stay is because our clients are so diverse. We do not just have, you know, some some political clients. We have some nonprofits. We also have clients that are just straight, you know, corporate 100 and 500. And so the diversity of clients has made it very, very helpful to just really pour some time into the company. But I also have challenged myself not to just get, you know, one-sided and one brain. So I went back to school in 2009 to film school.
0: I I was like, like, wait a minute. Am I reading this right? She went back to film school? What was Um, the 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 problem behind
1: that? Well, it was interesting because watching, I had this passion for visuals. I think we see, I think we have moved to a point where media, film, TV, it interprets who you are, knowingly or unknowingly. Mm-hmm. And I was deeply troubled by how, how women were being projected and how we are very skewed, especially, especially Black women. We are very skewed. You know, we either, they either think we're the housewives or they think we're Olivia Pope. There's no gray area. <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't have your hallmark, all all happy ending. Mm -hmm. you never have you it's hard to get that that happy ending but more importantly i thought to myself what would it take to change that so i didn't want people because i could have easily just stepped into you know production world because i had enough friends out there but i really wanted to learn the language i wanted to learn the obstacles i really wanted to learn my own path and I got to go to school again with a lot of young people who were fabulous. I'm still friends with them today. I think I was their uh, mominger because I bought all, that. I had to, you know, I was older. So I had to buy my equipment because I had to spend time in the evening because I was going to school at night. Mm-hmm. And so I had to buy equipment. I had, and to this day, one of my, one of my student friends has my very exp- i hope he's listening. I think I'm gonna point him to this podcast my very expensive camera, <laughs> but the fact is he stayed he stayed active and doing it so and I'm just delighted that he's still working very hard in it. so that's why that really is what drove me and i when I see things, I'm always thinking about the visual, all the storytelling
0: mm-hmm. and how
1: you help elevate the story
0: mm-hmm. um, so you have in your career manage a ton of different people from different backgrounds, um, different nationalities. This, this is a two-fold question I'll ask the first part. Um, right now, we are working in some like very strange, never been seen before times. So and a lot of the questions that we get from Black women is like, well, it was already hard enough to prove my value when I was in the office, right, to so get FaceTime with people. Now that we're not in the office, I don't know how i can provide value to my manager to my team so for you Mm how do you look at your team providing value to you as a leader right now
1: well you know and and i'll be the first to admit when i when we first started transitioning to working home it was very difficult to for me it wasn't difficult for my team. It was difficult for me. I was a very traditional, I like to go to work. I like to, you know, I worked late. I was usually the last one to leave the office, but it was that sense of um, structure and comfort. It took me a while to transition into, okay, getting up, you know, it wasn't the get up part, but it was just sitting at a table, not really having anybody to interact with. So even transmitting a comfort level for them was, you know, I had to make a flip in my head because they had no problems. Mm-hmm. They had no problems not being in the office because most of them like to telecommute anyway. They wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I think if, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed, there are those who show up, who show up on their Zooms mm-hmm. and they show their face Mm-hmm. And there, were, there are those who show up and you never see their face. Mm-hmm. So I, and I had one such person like that on my team. I said, I don't want you to keep calling into this call, especially not our, not our uh, all staff calls. And you're not, your face is not seen. Mm-hmm. I want to see you. Uh-huh. and then the other thing that you're believe it or not that we're looking at because we're at home we have you know it's almost like you have to almost um, managers have to balance out how they look at you because sometimes you you know like you still have your same schedule okay at six o'clock i'm shutting down i'm but with being at home it's a little bit different and you the expectation sometimes is a little different because people are calibrating so you know if you see an email pop up don't wait till the next day to answer it. Answer that email. Make yourself present. Not Don't feel like you cannot shut your life down and go to a normal. But in this extraordinary time, the people that are surging Are the people that are showing their presence. And I've I've learned that balance is a big word for millennials and for a younger generation. I need balance. I'm like, okay, maybe that's why I got these dark circles. I need some balance. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, you have to, you know, just little things. Showing up on your video calls. Don't be going into, you know, t- turn stopping the video. Turn that video on. Show your presence. Make sure you are answering, answering the call as though you were in the office. Make sure you are, you almost have to go the extra mile of the way to prove you are present.
0: Are there mistakes that you see young Black women making that their counterparts are making that could potentially be holding them back? Well,
1: I wouldn't call them mistakes. I would call them observations. There are some observations that I have noticed. Um, if you're not a writer, I would say, learn to write. Your counterparts love to write. That is their big strength. They are big writers, as they, you know, as they like to see. You'll get a memo in a minute. And one of the things that I have tried to change, train all of the people that work for me, which are a lot of people of color. First thing you want to do is learn to write and make sure you write well and make sure you communicate well, because, you know, many of you are in these jobs as a first time executive or manager, you didn't have anybody to teach you the ropes, you know, so first thing you do is learn to write always, always make sure you can put stuff in writing. Because people like to see that you have good follow through. And the best thing you can do to protect yourself is to follow through in writing. That's the first thing I have observed, which is really different. The second thing is sometimes we don't go out of our way to get in good trouble or to get in the way. And you have to make yourself present by getting in the way. Mm. And even if you...
0: (laughs) hmm? What does that look like?
1: Well, on on Zoom, it it probably looks like you're going to speak up. Instead of just being on a call, you have something to say. You have something to contribute. I mean, if you're being paid, I mean, you know, it doesn't really, sometimes I get the most joy of listening to younger staff people talk. Because you know what that says to me is they're growing, they're growing courage as they learn to speak up. And you don't have to worry about being right or wrong because you can always preface your statement by saying, I'm not really sure if this makes sense, but I'd like to just throw this out there. And nine times out of 10, it's probably an idea that nobody even thought about. And it's a great idea. So I think one part of it just means your presence has to be connected to your courage. Because a lot of times you'll get in these positions and you won't say a word. You, won't, you, just, you, know, you just keep your head down and, and you won't say anything. So you know, if you're an executive in an office or middle management, it's really okay to speak up. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would suggest is that you get to know people who work with you because they also see you when you don't see yourself. Mm -hmm. They will see you. I will tell you, most of my advance has come from people that saw me that I didn't know saw me. Mm. And they would give my name to somebody, or somebody would give me a call saying, "Hey, listen, have you talked to Mignon about this?" Or most of my clients are—they come from people that know me. Mm. You know, reputation. Your reputation matters.
0: Uh, and, and talking about that, right? You probably have one of the—you the, are one of the people that I know with the strongest networks. Like you—you are—you know everybody in America, like in the whole country. If there's a person that lives here, you know.
1: Um, so how
0: have you thought <laughs> <have you> <laughs> about building your network? And for someone who may be, you know, their first generation, they don't have people in this space. What are some things that they should be thinking about in terms of how they cultivate and grow? It?
1: Okay, I, that goes back to when I started working with Real, Willie Barrow. She exposed me to so many people, but one of the things that she said back in the day, she would say, Now make sure you record all these names, all these numbers, and you drop these people a note when you have met with them and you make yourself available to them if they, if they call my office. I mean, she was very open about that. And what I learned, what she was teaching me was building relationships. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you might not think that just say, for example, I mean, listen, Watchman, all all of that great work you did around the NBA, those people came because they knew you. They knew you had relationships. I remember when I reached out to you, you didn't know me from Adam, but you were so open. You were so inviting. You gave us an opportunity to showcase a business and that's the type of stuff that has endeared me to you because you were just open and i would say that's where you start building relationships mm-hmm. i mean there is nothing i would probably never do for you on a minute's notice or a you know a, a week's notice because you opened what you had up to me and you're thinking, "I'm this big Humla La, and I'm like, what? "Oh she's this big Humla La, and I got to get to know her, so we got to know each other, and now we're like, you know, we're buds. Yeah but that's, And so that was so basic. See to me, that was the basis of building good relationships that you, you, you displayed, And people take that for granted because they talk about networking and how can I get to this person?" But you thought about, okay, and it was just kindness, really. Mm-hmm. She's asking me a question. Let me make sure. And all of your busyness—it, it, I really found this in all of your business busyness. I never felt like you were off-putting, like I couldn't get answers. I mean, seriously, I saw you the day of, and I kept saying to myself, "This girl was this busy, and she took the time out to nurture, stupid me through this process." And I was so grateful. Really. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
0: Huh?
1: <laughs> no, no, you. Trust me. You all look to watchman She's got the best skill set. She's got she knows how to build relationships. She um, she, she taught me some more. She's taught me some more goodness when I saw her. Um so
0: let's <laughs> talk a little bit about because you are in, you've always been in um Positions where you are at the you're at the forefront, right? And do you ever think about like, well, how do you think about making mistakes? I think a lot of times people don't want to take high positions or take um, take on that responsibility because, like, when you make a mistake as the face, everybody knows about it. It's in the newspapers. It's, in, you know, what I'm saying. So, like, a lot of times that fear of the, the mm-hmm. constant commentary, the constant judging, holds us back. So for you, yeah. have you been in this position for a while, how do you think
1: about making mistakes? Well, it's never that you never not make mistakes. You try to minimize mistakes. And I, I have to tell you, that's a very good question because it took me a long time to understand I didn't have to be perfect mm-hmm. and that I could make mistakes. And I had to allow room to make mistakes too because if you don't, you will become this person that even you are uncomfortable with. And so now I, you know, and it takes some time. So don't think that this is going to happen overnight. But for me, I was always under the impression that, you know, I was under a microscope, that I had to do things just right. I had to work harder. I had to play smarter. I had to do everything just perfectly. Mm -hmm. And then it got to a point where I didn't have to do things perfectly anymore that I could actually leave room for mistakes or for being tired or for not just wanting to do it that day. You know, I tell my team all the time, the last thing you need to fear is a mistake around me. What you don't, what you should fear is not willing, being willing to try. Because that sends a certain signal in my head that if you're not even willing to try, then you're not going to and even if you make a mistake, you know, let's hope you have a compassionate boss or manager that mm-hmm. will understand it. But you have to make mistakes in order to grow.
0: And you're, you're someone who you have performed at a high level in business, but also with like entrepreneurial things. How have you been able to balance the two? Because I know a lot of times people are like, oh, I have a job and I have a side hustle. But their job is suffering and their side hustle is suffering because they're not giving or they don't have the bandwidth to give quality to either. So how have you thought
1: about that and done? Well, I will say this, and I know this is not going to go over well, you can't have it all. Something's going to suffer. And so you have to be deliberate with your choices, I'm just sorry. And it's nothing wrong if you want to be a good mom and a good wife or a good partner, it's okay to be that. But you cannot go into this thinking that you can have it all because something does suffer. So what you do go into is saying, what are my priorities? And what are the things that, what are my must do's? And for me, because I I can tell you what suffered in my life was my personal life, because I was all in on the professional life. So my personal life has suffered. Although I will tell you in COVID, I worked, it worked itself out. Because can you imagine? (laughs) To be here with some children and a husband for all you ladies <laughs> that's got the children and the husband. Oh my goodness, I am so delighted that the COVID thing is that's the only good thing that has happened to me out of COVID. I am not sitting on top of anybody right now, I'm not getting on anybody's nerves. But you do have to make choices, I think it's seriousness. You have to make choices, and you can make good choices. I mean, you can do it all. But you have to pri- prioritize the do it all. You can't, you know, you can't do all of these things at the same time well. Just prioritize them.
0: And as someone who is like, I think you are an effective communicator, but you are also a direct communicator. Um, do you ever worry about people labeling you as like the angry black woman or like any of those stereotypes? Because you're, a lot of the work that you're doing requires a clarity of thought and clarity of message and clarity of communication. And I think you aren't necessarily comfortable yet with like the directness of women and then the directness of a black woman. I think sometimes people struggle with it. So do you ever, like
1: how do you approach that? Well, you know, I have, um, having worked in so many various positions and having worked for so many high level people, it really taught you how to calibrate how you present. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, there are times when I am incredibly angry at something or something that has happened. And this has also been an evolution. But I never go into a meeting. I'm not a screamer. And I'm not a person that's going to, you know, like one of my, one of my BFFs, she's, a, she's the cursor. And we were on a podcast with each other not too long ago. And she said if she had anything she could take back, it would be that she cursed out so many people along the way. <laughs> but for me, you know, I'm always, I'm always thinking language, visuals, all that stuff is always important to me, but it never compromised what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And this is a real, I think this is a real, this is not a trick, but this is something you need to focus on. People will allow you to say anything you want to say, especially if it comes from a level of trust and a built relationship. I can say almost anything. I used to say it to the president of the United States until he, he did a film about me not too long ago. And what he said in the film, if she says to you, in all due respect, no, what's coming behind that is not going to be pretty. And that is, that's the truth. I mean, you know, I always, you know, if you have something tough to say, that's that's always been my little catchphrase. Well. In all due respect, let me just see if you can think about it this way. And sometimes there are days where you're just going to be angry, but don't make that a habit. And don't make us a stereotype either. And it doesn't make you smarter when you think you can just bam, bam, bam somebody. It makes them not listen to you, and it makes them afraid to listen to you. So you got to put yourself in a position where you get your point across while you're allowing people to hear what you have to say.
0: Yeah. And with all these, like all of the career demands and all of the entrepreneurial demands, what does a balanced life look like for you? Like, do you think that you bad? we talked about this a little bit earlier, would you consider yourself a balanced person? And if so, like, what does that look like?
1: I'm not a balanced person. You know, I think a balanced person would be, you know, if we weren't in COVID, I think a balanced person would probably, probably be doing things on the weekend that they're really interested in doing or even in the evenings you know not working to nine and ten o'clock at night that's a balanced person to me i'm not that person and i'm okay with it because you know it all depends on if you really enjoy what you're doing because i enjoy my work most of the time and so when i when i'm balanced i'm actually trying to figure out how i'm gonna really Influenced my film career that's when mm-hmm. I feel like I'm most balanced mm-hmm. but otherwise I'm just I'm the wrong one for balance <laughs> I want to be balanced so if there's somebody that can teach me that please teach me
0: yeah, but the, I guess the question is Is balance something that you're in pursuit of? right like is it something that you that you feel like is missing or are you like no my life is good the way it is and like it, it is I created it this way intentionally and so I'm, I'm fine with not being considered balanced.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's fair. Yes, that's the way. And that's the way I feel most of the time. I remember when Sheryl Sandberg came out with this book, Lean In. And sometimes I'm not leaning in or leaning out. I'm just trying to make it through the day. And (laughs) that's balance. I mean, seriously, Mm. I'm not trying to lean it in or lean it out. I am just trying to make it through the day. But I do think we are the we are the products of our own environment and it is the the balance that i have created for myself yeah. i think what i what i should be thinking about more is probably even in COVID, i feel like i'm not getting as much rest yeah. as i should ironically enough and so that worries me a little bit yeah. that i'm going to going to bed far too far too late and getting up far too far too early so mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then just looking back over your career, holistically, like, what, are, what is that like, one challenge that you think you had to, to work through or to, to figure out because you were a black woman that your counterparts maybe did not have to even
1: think about? Well, I, I'll go back to the White House experience. I can tell you not one of my white counterparts would have ever said no or ever said, I think about it. That is just not something that enters their mind. They, they wake up thinking they are qualified enough. And that was the, to me, like I said, that was the biggest lesson I learned about my life. Don't ever approach any situation as though you're not good enough. Mm. And so that, that to me was my, my lesson learned. And it has, been my, it has been my career path ever since. You know, if somebody asks me about a job, if I want to take a look at it, because I've gotten several job offers, I do. If I don't, I don't. Mm. So that you know
0: that's a that's a level of freedom that i think people once you know your worth and what you contribute i think that comes that's with right. it um and i think yeah. because you perform at a high level for so long you know what you bring mm-hmm. to the table you know what it, like what is meant for you and what is it like for my interactions do you, you have a level of self-awareness that allows you to quickly mm-hmm. like this is for me or this isn't for me and then you, like you don't feel any qualms. that's right But
1: I don't just not make it for me. I always try to figure out who it can be for, though. I was just on the phone with one of my clients this morning approaching me about something. I said, no, that's not for me, but I got the perfect person. Mm. And they're probably on the phone now, you know? So, yeah, I think that's the other thing we have to learn is not to let, just because the door closes for you, you should open it for somebody else. When you're at a table, swing the door wide open. You can always bring somebody else to the table.
0: Mm. So we're going to go to the lightning round. Oh, And don't think too quickly, about, uh, too much about this. It's the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, I think I already know the answer to the first question, but what's one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? Don't
1: be afraid to be your own boss.
0: What's your lesson that took you the longest to learn, but it's had the biggest impact on your
1: career? We understand far more than we think we do, and that we can analyze problems and situations far better than most people because we've had to have a duality in our lives all the time. We're always looking at somebody else other than ourselves. And with that prism, you tend to be more multifaceted at analyzing stuff.
0: Mm. what's one book that you could read over and over again
1: the colored girls who consider politics because i always find some gems in it every time i'm doing something i always pick it up and say "Ooh, this is a good gem from yolanda <laughs> i can read my <laughs> own book over and over again
0: <laughs> and it, it's for colored girls who for colored girls who considered politics that's right um and then the last question is we all know that decisions about your career are going to be made when you're not in the room so what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room
1: that she not only brings skill but she brings integrity
0: take rest and take notes and i'm always like but you're recording the podcast (laughs) listen to it you don't have to write it down so quickly um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, definitely lots of gems drop. The whole impact, like just looking around and knowing that you are capable, that is a game changer, right? But for whatever mm-hmm. reason, regardless of if we have the degree, yeah. we have the work and we have all those things, we always still, and I think it's because we make assumptions about everybody else's uh, ability in a very positive light, And then we look at ourselves in a very like mm-hmm. a negative way.
1: And I would, let me just close this by saying, don't discount experience. I know that we, the degrees are great and all of that. I firmly believe in education, but the experience really matters. It teaches you so much more and it's more practical in terms of your growth. So get as much experience, volunteer where you can, but get as much experience as you can. On
0: that note, thank you. Thank you and happy birthday <laughs> was an amazing 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 person when i first started um this interview and i'm so glad that i took the time to connect with her now you all know that i like to end each episode with uh the top three gems that i took from that and so here are my top three one the importance of pouring back into the next generation of people. She mentioned how the reason that she was able to do all the things that she's done is because she's had people pour back into her. And so thinking through how we can pour into someone else as we do this thing called being black women in corporate America, um, I think the second thing that I really love is when she talked about the best job being one that doesn't put you in a box because it allows you to color outside the lines. And so how do we reimagine what it's like to hold the positions that we hold? Um, and to do the work that we do that allows us to color outside the lines. And then I think the third and most important thing is like not doubting yourself. We've talked about imposter syndrome a little bit on the podcast, um, but how she almost missed out on a really great career opportunity because she was doubting herself. And once she got to that job, realizing that she was more than prepared and more than um, able to do the work. And so making it a habit not to question herself um, when opportunities come along. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can connect with us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder or on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder Podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening.